as we sort of navigate the, the kid shuffle, two kind of resource notes. Um, on Wednesday, Lent starts. Wednesday's Ash Wednesday. Lent will run us up until Easter. We made a resource a few years ago to, if you're wanting to kind of partake in that season of fasting and, and the spiritual kind of discipline and development formation that can come out of that. We made a, a resource, a devotional guide to kind of help you with that. Those are available today. We've used them over the last few years. We haven't made any changes. So if you still have one at home, it's the same. Uh, you can pick up those books e- either exit as you head out today, but you can also get them online. If you go to the bibleinitiative.com, our kind of resource page, there's like a other resources overview kind of thing you can click. And about midway down, it says devotional resources and the Lint booklet is there if you would rather just use it online rather than have a hard copy. The other resource note is that the Bible Initiative page in general has been updated with stuff from the last few weeks in our Genesis series. If, if there are aspects from the sermon that you want to go back and see each week on that page. There are specific resources, whether they be slides or aspects of the sermon that are put there. You can just listen to the sermon right there from that page. We've also gone back and uploaded some resources from previous sermon series. And so our hope on that, that whole resource, bibleinitiative.com page, is that one of two ways. You could use that, those for your own personal study as you're reading the Bible and you come up on like Zephaniah or something. We have resources uh, from that series that we did a number of years ago. I think the only sermon series that we've done recently that doesn't have something there is Luke, mostly just because we haven't wrapped our head around the right way to get like the 80-some weeks of content in a helpful form there on the website. So you can use those for your own study. You can also use them in discipleship relationships. If you're in a discipleship relationship with someone, you're looking for kind of what to do next. You want to study God's word together, but you don't feel equipped to like lead a big in-depth study on, you know, fill in the blank. You could go there, grab those resources and let those kind of help shape and guide the way that that relationship goes for you. So thebibleinitiative.com. If that's hard for you to remember, just go to our website. There's a little button in the top right corner that says Bible resources. You can click there. It'll take you to it. And then you can use that website from there. Um, We're going to zero in on a couple of verses here in Genesis chapter one this morning. Right kind of smushed into the middle of day six. There's a really powerful and important statement about humanity that's made in verses 26 and 27. Um, I want to read the entire chapter, though. But before we do that, we did this a couple weeks ago. If you're going to pass out the communion uh, elements, could you take those and just let's get those distributed now rather than having to do that later? Uh, If you are someone who has been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we invite you to take communion with us. You do not have to be like a, a member of our church in order to do this. We invite all followers of Jesus to do this. A little two stack of cups. There's a wafer in the bottom cup, juice in the top one. If you want a gluten-free wafer, there in the middle. Um, once you've got that, we're not going to use it right away. We're going to use it later on uh, in our time together. So you can just set it down by your chair or the chair in front of you. Somewhere where you're hopefully not going to kick that over. If you do kick it over, it's okay. Uh, we'll get you another one when the time comes. Um, We'll use those a little bit later. So we'll, we'll like let these get passed out 
it'll be kind of quiet for a minute, but that's okay. And then if you've got a Bible, flip it to Genesis chapter one. That's where we're going to be. And here in just a moment, we'll read that together. All right, if you got Genesis 1 open there in front of you, I'm going to start reading. You're welcome to follow along. It says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water from under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed bearing plants according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day, the fourth day, sorry. Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seeds. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. God, we thank you that you have chosen to set your image upon humanity. God, I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to see the truth from your word about what that means and why it matters and how it should inform the way that we think about ourselves and how we think about the rest of humanity. God, I pray that as we look at your word and seek to understand it, that you would be glorified, that we would be reminded of Jesus, the perfect image bearer. God, that we would rejoice in the truth of what he has done on our behalf. We would look forward to the day when we will be in your presence for all of eternity. God, would you be glorified in the midst of our time together? Would you shape us and mold us, challenge us and convict us? Would you comfort us according to your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 26 and 27, that's what we're sort of trying to dial in on today. And the question that we want to try to answer is, what does Scripture mean by the image of God? And then how does that impact our daily life? Our doctrine only matters so much as its practical outworkings impact the way that we live. So it's great to just know some stuff, like what is the doctrine of the image of God, but the ultimate aim of knowing stuff is that it would take root in our heart and impact the way that we live. And so we're going to spend kind of the first half of our time together trying to unpack what does the doctrine of the image of God mean in the second half, asking ourselves, how should that impact the way that we live? It is common for pastors, uh, scholars, theologians, followers of Jesus to sort of make the the kind of like passing statement that humanity is the pinnacle or the peak of God's creation. What God does when he makes humanity is like the apex of everything that's happening in Genesis chapter one. And this is an accurate statement, but how do we arrive at that? Because Genesis chapter one does not say God created this and then this and then this, and then he created humanity and they were coolest. It never says that. What is it about kind of the structure or the framework of Genesis chapter one that would lead us to, to sort of think or make the statement that humanity is the apex of God's creating work? There are some markers in the chapter that help distinguish that. If you took all of Genesis chapter one and two and you just put like some brackets around each one of the days so that you could visually see very quickly where each one falls, you would notice that your bracket is biggest around day six. It's about a fourth of Genesis chapter one. There's something to be said for the amount of verbiage given over to what happens in day six. There appears to be like an ascending order of significance to what is created, specifically in days four, five, and six. 
lights to govern the day and the night on day four, creatures in the water and in the air on day five, creatures on land at the start of day six, and then humanity. It would seem like we're sort of ascending some kind of peak toward greater importance or significance that culminates with humanity. There's a lot that could be said about the verbiage that takes place as God creates humanity in verse 26. Every other act of creation, God said, let there be, and then there was. It's kind of impersonal. It's just, he, he says it and it happens. And then the verbiage switches in verse 26. God said, let us make. There's almost like a deliberative thing there. Like he's, he's like, okay, let's do this. And there's also the fact that that's more personal than any of the other statements. The other ones seem kind of impersonal. Let there be this, let there be this, let there be this. Now let us make humanity in our image. Theologians over time have sort of debated the nature of the word us there. This isn't necessarily uh, the right time to explore all the theories or thoughts on why that's plural all of a sudden there in verse chapter tw- or in verse 26. There's also the reality that in verse 26, it's plural in other places in the statement about creation of humanity. It's singular. Theologians have spent a lot of time trying to sort of like parse out exactly what that means. I'll say one thing and then leave it there. In Genesis chapter one, you've got God creating. That would be like the father. Genesis chapter one, verse two says that the spirit is present, hovering over the surface of the watery depths. John chapter one, when it talks about Jesus coming into the world, reflects back upon the creation of all things and lets us know that the son was present there. So even though Genesis chapter one, verse 26, does not enumerate for us the reality of the Trinity, an ancient Israelite would not have heard the opening chapter of Genesis read or recited and thought to themselves, ah, yes, God is three in one. Trinity and unity, unity in Trinity. That wouldn't have happened. But scripture does, chapter one, page one, lay out a doctrine for us that is revealed over the course of God's revelation of himself and brings fullness in the scope of the Bible. That God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then upon reflection, all of them are present in the work of creation. There's also something unique happening in the verbiage in verse 27. We said in Genesis chapter one, verse one, if you were here for like the second sermon, in the beginning, God created. The word created there in Hebrew is bara, B-A-R-A. We said that throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew, humanities can make, they can fashion, they can form, they can build, they can do a lot of stuff, but humanity never baraz, creates. Only God does that. In verse 27, that verb appears three times. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That seems significant. Scripture's trying to tell us something important about God's creating work here. Humanity's raised above the rest of the living created order in order to rule and reign, have dominion. That seems significant. And then after creating humanity, God now pronounces everything not just good or tov, that's what he's used throughout, and it was tov, it was tov, it was tov. Now we're told that it was very good indeed. Literally in Hebrew, behold, it was good exceptionally. That's what God says after humanity is created. Again, that's, Something different. It seems to be setting apart something special that's happening in the sixth day of creation. There's something unique and particularly wonderful about what God does 
when he creates humanity. And all centers on two words, image and likeness. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This doctrine has historically been called the imago dei. That's Latin, the image of God. And historically, there's been debate, as there typically is about theological things, about what exactly constitutes or comprises this image and likeness. Does it primarily have to do with form, image, what we look like? Like, this is what God is like. Does it primarily have to do with function? We do something specific that's different than what the rest of creation does. Does it primarily have to do with feature? Like there's some stuff about us, some collection of moral qualities, something about our being, body, soul, spirit, that's different than the rest of creation, and that constitutes the image of God. And if you went back throughout uh, Christian history and you found faithful people of different theological streams, they would all tell you that it could primarily be one of these things or exclusively be one of these things, or as a lot of modern scholarship has said, it might comprise all three. What we're going to do is kind of ask the question, is the image of God primarily about form? Is it primarily about function? Is it primarily about feature? And so we're just going to work our way through that. First, is the image of God primarily concerned with form? There are two different ways you can kind of do theology as you look at the Bible. You can do what's known as biblical theology, where you just ask yourself, what, do, what does the word image mean every time it shows up in the scriptures? Or you can do systematic theology, which would be to step back, take the whole of scripture, and sort of build a systematic understanding of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the image of God. We're gonna do both of those as we try to answer these questions. We're gonna start with biblical theology. Image, likeness. What do those words mean in scripture? The word for image is the word selem, T-S-E-L-E-M. When it shows up in scripture, it's typically translated as statue, replica, figure, idol, image, Genesis 1. The word for likeness is the word demuth, D-E-M-U-T-H. It has a very wide sort of flexible range of translations. Sometimes it shows up as like builder's draft or similarity in appearance, model, resemblance, similar manner. Most worth pointing out here is that image and likeness are not like one uh, sort of modifies the other. It's not that the word likeness modifies how we understand image or the word image modifies how we understand likeness. Most of the time in the Old Testament, they're synonymous with one another. We're talking about the same thing when we use one of these two words. The word image shows up four times in this sort of creation context in Genesis. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you see it in two different sets. And then Genesis 5, you get it again. In what appears to be like a restatement of the Genesis 1 creation account that also implies that what Adam was, he passed on. It says this, Genesis 5, starting in verse 1. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the image of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them, called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image. The next time this word appears is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. That's right in the middle of like all the flood stuff. It says this. 
Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed. That's another sermon for another time. For God made humans in his image. What do we get out of that? Despite the reality of human sin, murder, killing one another, there's a restatement or affirmation of the fact that despite sin, humans are still in the image of God. Salem. Like it hasn't disappeared because sin came and now humanity is no longer made in God's image. It doesn't answer for us though, is this all about form, like what we look like? There are a couple other Old Testament usages of the word Salem that I think are helpful here. The first is in Psalm 93 verse, or Psalm 39 verse 5. If you take notes and you want to jot that down, you can go look at it or you can flip really quickly. It says this, in fact, you have made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes around like a mere shadow. That's the CSB. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. If you use the ESV, if you use the NLT, shadow is the word that shows up there. If you use the NIV, or a New King James, or you use the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, your translation will say phantom. The word is salem, shadow, phantom. What's all of that pointing to? Well, it's pointing to the fact that this can't be about physical image if now we're talking about shadow, if now we're talking about phantom. It's not physical in that sense. I'm gonna give you the best illustration I can come up with. This is just an illustration. Don't try to push this to the very nth degree. Once a year, a bunch of people gather around a, a little animal hidey hole and they pull themselves out a poor groundhog. And in front of all of these cameras and all of these human beings gathered together, they hold this uh, groundhog up in the air and they say, will he see a shadow? 90% of the time, he does, and you get six more weeks of winter. But what he doesn't see is himself on the ground. He sees a shadow, something lesser that's somehow connected to his physical form. That would appear to be what some of the usages of the word salem mean. It's not your actual physical form, but it is something kind of attached to the physical form. Psalm 73 verse 20 gives us another instance of this. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image in the CSB. But there are actually a wide variety of ways that English Bibles try to translate the word salem there. Some use form, some use phantom, some use image, some use like talk about a dream or something like that. Again, the purpose of this is to display that the word salem is not limited to physical form. That's the point. So is the image of God primarily concerned with physical form? I would answer that question this way. The words image and likeness are related to, but not solely about humanity's physical form. All of that would seem to enable us to say that the image and likeness of God in humanity is not solely related to the way that we look, just based on the usage of the words in the Old Testament. That still doesn't really answer the question for us, so let's move to the next one. Is the image of God primarily concerned with function, something that we do? Because verse 26 moves straight to function after the statement, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Then it tells us, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So is the image and the likeness the function? 
Is that what we're talking about? Genesis 1 does not say, God says, let us create man in our image according to our likeness. The image of God is. That's what we would really like for it to do. That image is the fact that they will rule and they will reign. The sense in Genesis 1 is that God is going to make humanity in his image and they are going to fulfill a particular function. Made in my image and they do this. As if to say that image creates a result, ruling and reigning. But this ruling and reigning is not the content of the image, if that makes sense. It seems more like a consequence. He creates humanity, sets his image upon them, and as a result of his image being upon humanity, they will have a particular function. So I would answer this question this way. The creation mandate, which is just ruling and reigning, is a consequence of the image of God, not the soul or the primary content of it. We'll talk about the whole topic of our function next week because it has really important implications for how we think of our role and our purpose in the world. We, we are to rule and reign. We are to subdue, to have dominion over creation. That's a consequence of the image of God, not necessarily the content of it. And then last question, is the image of God primarily concerned with a feature of humanity? Is it like some collection of qualities that we have? We have to answer this question by doing systematic theology, like step back, take the whole of the Bible, and try to say, what is the image of God and what does it mean for humanity? There are things that we cannot be that God is. He's uncreated, we are created. He's unchanging, we change constantly. He's eternal, we're time-bound. He's independent, we're dependent. He's infinite, we are finite. He's all-knowing, not even Google is all-knowing. He's all-powerful, we are very limited in our power. He is all-present, we can only be in one place at one time. Yet we bear his image. And there are traits of God that we as humanity can sort of broadcast out into the world as a result of being made in his image. We do, do so in part, not in full. He is infinite, we are finite in these things. So he is loving, infinitely loving. We can be loving in some capacity. He's good, we can be good in some capacity. He's merciful, we can be merciful. He's gracious, we can be gracious. He's faithful and patient and truthful and kind and wise. And we can be those things in part. But you cannot go to chapter and verse that says, and that is what the image of God is. So I would answer this question this way. Scripture does not provide a list of qualities that constitute the image of God within humanity. There's no place where you can find the list of features that comprise the image of God. And so you get to sort of the end of the whole question, and it would seem as though Genesis, as well as the rest of Scripture, is not particularly interested in explicitly defining the image of God for us. We simply are as humans, made in God's image. You are. Well, what is the image of God? You're made in it. That seems to be the extent of what Scripture wants us to really be able to drive home. We can draw some implications, and I want to enumerate those for us. And so I'm going to put a whole list up here. There are six of these. There are some truths about the image of God that we can draw out. Humanity is uniquely created in the image of God. None of, none of the rest of creation is. So God creates all the creatures of the land. He does not say, and 
let's make hippos in our image. It's not God creates all the birds in the sky and all the fish in the sea, and then he says, let's make toucans in our image. Humanity is uniquely created in the image of God. It's also worth pointing out that the image of God is a reality that both sexes possess in full. Both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 5, male and female. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them both male and female. The third one, we already kind of spelled this out. Dominion over creation is a consequence of the image of God, not necessarily the content of it. Humanity continues to pass on the image of God. That would be like the Genesis 5. Adam and Eve are created in God's image, and then Adam has children that are in his image. The next... The image of God is defaced but not destroyed by sin. The best illustration I can come up with for this is from The Lion King. If you give me enough time to think about anything, I will come up with a Disney illustration for you. There's a, there's a scene in The Lion King. Simba has been born. You know, they've done the whole like pride rock, lift him up and all the animals bow down. And then Rafiki, the monkey, goes back to his tree and he like paints on the trunk of the tree a picture of Simba. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, then there's the whole thing where Mufasa dies and they chase Simba away and everyone thinks that Simba has died and Rafiki goes back to the tree and in frustration, he like swipes his hand across the picture that he drew on the trunk of the tree and it's defaced but not destroyed. You know what I'm talking about? Because then later when Simba comes back, Rafiki goes back to the tree and redraws, restores that image there on the tree trunk. That's the best I can do with defaced, not destroyed. Sin comes into the world, and it's not now that we don't possess the image of God at all. It's just defaced inside of us. Genesis 9, 6 reasserts for us in the middle of one of the darkest, bleakest pictures of sin in all of Scripture, in the midst of the flood. Humans are made in God's image. Despite the sin, they still are defaced, not destroyed. Last, the image of God is a statement about the entirety of humanity's being. So, in attempting to define the image of God, I will join with John Piper in the following definition. The image of God is that in humanity which constitutes them as those whom God uniquely loves. What is the image of God? It's the thing inside of you that makes it so that God uniquely loves humanity in a way that he does not love the rest of creation. God loves humans in a way that is unique and different than the way that he loves mosquitoes. His glory is evident in all of his creation, but there's something unique about humanity. Unique in such a way that when God creates humanity, he does so in his image and he sets his affection upon them in a way that's different than anything else in the rest of creation. So we take, try to like, take the doctrine here and apply it. The doctrine is only as meaningful as it takes root in our heart and impacts the way that we live. And so I'm gonna give you four of these over the rest of our time. The first is this. The image of God is a reality we humbly receive. That's number one. Before Adam and Eve had done a single thing, 
God, by his grace, for his glory, and for the sake of the display of that glory in the universe, chose to set both his image and his affection upon humanity. It was not, name the animals, and if you name them well enough and with enough creativity, then I will put my image upon you. No, it's before that. It's not, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. You can eat from every other tree, but not that one. And if you avoid that tree, then I will set my image upon you. God, by his grace and his free choice, sets his image and his affection upon humanity before they have done anything to deserve either one of those things. We humbly receive that. It's something about the sum total of who we are as human beings. It's been passed throughout all of humanity since Adam and Eve. It's fully present within both sexes and within every member of humanity, defaced but not destroyed by sin, a gift from the creator of the universe to humans. You just humbly receive it. You didn't do anything to earn it. By his grace, he's chosen to place that within humanity. Okay, so then what? Number two, the image of God is the reality we joyfully possess. We tried to put some images to these. If you're a visual learner, I hope the images are helpful. If you're not a visual learner, write down the words and just move on. Again, they're not perfect. But the hope is to try to express in picture form a doctrine that's very important. One of the challenges with the image of God is that at times we can be dismissive or disregarding of it in ourselves. You humbly receive it. He has placed it upon you. But now you joyfully possess that. At times when we talk about sort of like the worth and the dignity and the value of humanity, we'll turn to Psalm 139. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. All of your days marked out before you lived a single one of them. The sum of God's thoughts about you are both precious and vast, we're told in Psalm 139. And we'll get to kind of the end of that explanation. We'll say that the thing that is really wonderful about you is that you're unique, special, different. There's no one else like you in all of humanity. And that is absolutely true. But every line of human thought could arrive at that. Just take humanism, the sort of like pervading ideology in our world today. Humanism would say, you're unique and you're special. You're different. You have value because there's no one else like you. Christianity has a well that is way deeper than that. The thing that's truly wondrous about Psalm 139 is that you are unique and fearfully and wonderfully made and all your days are marked out and the sum of God's thoughts about you are vast and wondrous and you're made in his image. Like that's the thing that's so incredible. That's the true wonder. Everything about you. God intentionally made. And it portrays something of his image and his nature out into the world and the universe that he created. Your gender. So women in a lot of societies throughout a lot of time, just being female, the sense was that you were lesser because you were not male. Genesis chapter one says that ain't true a rebuke against every culture that would ever try to say that. Male and female in his image, equal bearers of the image of God. Your personality, 
look, we like to try to put people into buckets. So you got like all these personality tests that would you're this or you're that or whatever the case might be, and it's fun to try to understand one another, right? Or we say like you're an, you're introverts and you're extroverts and extroverts, yay, introverts, you're a liability to the world and to yourself. <laughs> and we've got you in buckets, right? But the bucket is image bearer. Like, that's the thing that matters. What is at the core of what it is to be human? It's to bear the image of God uniquely for his glory and his creation. And so we can try to figure out, like, the differences in personalities and those kinds of things. It's whatever. It's totally fine. But your preferences and your tastes, your gifts and your talents and your passions, your temperament display something about who God is out into the world. And you're not more like the image of God because you're married rather than single. You're not more like the image of God because you have children versus being childless. You're not more like the image of God because you're wealthy or blessed or you've got status as your current culture would define it. You just are the image of God. You joyfully possess that, which would lead me to say this. You may have some stuff about you that you hate. And I use the word hate intentionally. There could be some aspects about your personality or your physical being or your mental constitution that you would give anything to swap away. Physical limitations, mental illness, And it causes a degree of self-loathing inside of you that may have you at the point of being just at the end of your rope where you think to yourself, you know what? I would rather not exist any longer than have to deal with this thing for another day or another hour. And the best that the world has to offer you is, well, you're unique and special. And what if you say to yourself, my uniqueness and specialness is the thing that I hate. Stop telling me I'm unique. I don't want to be that. The well in Christianity drops so much deeper than that. You bear the image of God. And that thing that you might hate about yourself, I'm not talking about your sin struggles or your temptations or those kinds of things. I'm talking about just the constitution of who you are. And that thing that you hate, it uniquely and yet intentionally tells the world something about who God is. And oftentimes what we do in our self-loathing is we kind of subconsciously would look at God and say, you messed up. This is your fault. Everybody else, fearfully and wonderfully made, but you must have been distracted when you got to me because I hate this thing about me. And we become dismissive about the image of God that we bear out into the world. That's not to downplay those things about ourselves that we might wish weren't the case. Whether they be physical disability or mental disability or you know, disposition toward particular mental illness or whatever the case might be. But the image of God inside of you wraps itself around that and gives you a value and a worth and a dignity even in the midst of that thing that you don't like. 
And so you joyfully possess that. Number three, the image of God is a reality that we solemnly recognize. One of the dangers in this is that you say like, well, I humbly receive it and I joyfully possess it. And the whole point of that is for me to say, world, look at me. I'm wonderful and special and unique. To like the disregarding of other people. All the people in the room here and all the people on the face of the planet bear the image of God. And the most grievous sort of large-scale society-wide sins, whether they be modern or historical, that take root in a place at their core are a negation of the image of God in other image bearers. When a culture's unique expressions of sin and brokenness take hold, what frequently and grievously happens is at a societal level, we make policies or structures or decisions that negate the image of God in whole groups of people. And so pick your uh, historical society that had just brutal disparities in class or wealth. Poor people, you're lesser. Rich people, you're more. They have the image of God. You do not. And we will design whole systems that make sure you stay in your place and they stay in theirs. Societies that have dismissive attitudes toward the aged. It's like, well, you know what? You get to a certain age, you tip over that line, and it's like, we'll just kind of sort of like slide you over to the side where nobody has to deal with your physical degeneration or your mental degeneration. We'll just hide you away over here because at a certain point, you phase out of the image of God, and it's the young people that really matter. Or there are certain societies where that gets flipped on its head, and it's the young that don't, that didn't matter. It was like you need to get to a certain age where you would have full status and worth and value and dignity in a society. Ignoring or marginalizing the physically or the mentally disabled. Slavery. Sex trafficking. Lack of care for the poor. Abortion. Racism. What we're doing in any of those is we're saying, you know what, you don't have value or worth or dignity and therefore we don't have to honor you. What happens in a lot of these cases is that it's not everybody within society who actively participates in the negation, but often the silent majority chooses not to resist it. The people of God ought to rise up in any and all of these situations and say, hey, the image of God in those people means that we cannot abide by that behavior or that attitude or that policy or that decision. And throughout history, what has happened is that Christians have done that and they fought back against those things and said, this cannot stand. Why? Because those people bear the image of God. Now, it's really easy to sort of talk about those things and kind of distance ourselves from them because most of us are not policymakers or most of us are not setting like structural systems in place. But we need to sort of press this deeper and see the truth of it in our own hearts because many individual sort of like horizontal sins that we commit against one another are negations of the image of God in another person. So Jesus says that to hate someone in your heart is like murdering that person. That our often hateful attitudes are negating the image of God in that other person. Lust or pornography, something like 
that we would say oftentimes in society, it's like a victimless crime. Well, no, it's not. You're treating another human being as something to be consumed rather than image bearer to be honored. You're negating the image of God in them. We gossip or we slander about people. We speak disdainfully about someone that God has set his image and his affection upon. We lie. And it's like, you know what? You're not even worth the truth. Greed at its core is our desire to have more for ourselves. And whether we admit it or not, we want the more for ourselves, even if it comes at the expense of another image bearer just having enough. And we think we can just compile and compile and compile and compile because I need to make sure that I have enough. I don't care what they have. They're not worth me being concerned about. Our pride or boasting is often an attempt to set ourselves above another image bearer. That's a higher view of the dignity, worth, and value of other human beings as the image bearers of God that are to be, ought to be part of what distinguishes followers of Jesus from those who are not. And again, the well for this is deeper in Christianity than it is in any other worldview. Oh, you're, just, you're, you're unique and you're special. Well, what happens when your uniqueness and your specialness gets to a point that I do not like it anymore? Well, then I just come up with a way to disregard you. I mean, KU fans. Ugh. The image bearers. Right? Like, the person who is politically or ideologically as far removed from you as is possible. We convince ourselves that like the way they think or the way that they act or the decisions that they want to make or the policies that they would put in place, that just disqualifies them from having dignity and value because I can't stand the things that they think. I can say whatever I want about them. I can treat them however I want. I can condescend about them as much as I want. Not if you believe in Jesus. Not if you affirm everything that Genesis chapter one has to say about the value and the worth and the dignity of human beings, you can disagree as much as you want, but you also would need to defend their value and their worth. Colossians chapter one tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if you got your cups, now's the time to grab those. How dignified is your humanness what is its value and its worth? Well, so much so that invisible God would take on form in order to save us. And the form that he would take on is that of humanity. We're told that God the Father was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the Son, Jesus. His fullness not defaced by sin because Jesus has no sin. And all of the infinite qualities of God would be born out perfectly into the world by the Son. And that he would do so for a specific purpose, in order to redeem those who by their sin have defaced the image of God in the world. The actual perfect image bearer goes to the cross, body broken, blood poured out, in order to restore that which we have willingly and sometimes joyfully dismissed, defaced, disregarded in those around us and oftentimes in ourselves. We've thought so little of God's image that we would disregard it. The son thinks so much of God's image that he would hang on a cross in order to restore it inside of his people. So I want to invite you for a moment into what we're told is part of what communion is supposed to breed within us, and that is repentance.
you may need to take a minute to just be like refreshed by the joyful reality that you are a humble recipient of God's image, that you possess it inside of you. You might need to take a second and repent very specifically for the ways that you are dismissive or disregarding of that image inside of you. I'll give you an example. I think it's a flaw in my system that God would call me to be a pastor and yet I would prefer silence and alone time versus being with other people. Like how could you make that mistake about me, God? You messed up. No, he didn't. There's something unique about his image that even in my introversion is displayed out into the world. That could take a lot of different forms inside of us. You might need to repent for that. You may need to take a moment to repent of the ways in which you have dismissed or disregarded the image of God in others. And I don't mean like some general prayer of like, yeah, God, sometimes I sin. Thanks for Jesus. I mean specifically, in the last week, in the last day, this morning, you may have sinned against someone in such a way that you dismissed or disregarded the image of God in that person, and you need to repent. You may need just a moment to stand in awe of the perfect image bearer who came in order to redeem and restore you. That's what we do when we come to communion. And so I'm going to give you some time here in just total silence to get before the Lord, repent, and rejoice in the fact that the perfect image bearer of God would come and hang on a cross in your place in order to restore the image of God in his people. We'll take these uh, together here in just a moment. So you can spend some time in prayer, then I'll draw us back together and we'll take communion.